I hope you will take a New Testament and turn to the uh, short letter of 1 Timothy toward the end of it as we continue on a series for the next several weeks on, on 1 Timothy. As you're turning to 1 Timothy chapter 1, I remind you this is written by the Apostle Paul to uh, Timothy, who was probably about 35 years old at the time he received this from Paul. He is a He's been sent to Ephesus, the ancient, very important urban center of Ephesus, and he's a pastor there in a church that had started just uh, basically eight years before, and now uh, Timothy is the, uh, the pastor, and he's been sent there by the Apostle Paul primarily to deal with setting the church in order and with, to deal with some false teachers that had arisen from within the church. They hadn't come from outside, they had arisen from inside, as Paul five years earlier had foretold the elders at Ephesus that would happen. And so we come now to verses 12, chapter 1, verses 12 and following, and I've entitled this Paul's Personal Testimony. Hear God's word beginning in verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example of those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So ends the reading of of God's word. I had a friend that attended a college some years ago, and when he first got there, he was a very committed Christian and very ministry-oriented when he arrived. And he wanted to get some of the other students together to begin a, a campus ministry there at his school that really had none at the time. And there was another student that was one year older, I believe, than, than my friend. And he had already uh, he met him in the cafeteria one day, and this other student kind of gave his, his overview of what the ministry should be, and this guy was pretty much a type A then and now, and I know him, very committed guy, but a very strong personality. And my friend, when he left the conversation, said that he told himself really kind of a prayer under his breath. He said, Lord, if you're going to do anything on this campus, it isn't going to be through that guy. Not given his personality and, and the, the arrogance that he seemed to display. And yet over the next few years, God was pleased to raise up hundreds of students uh, that still serve Christ today. As a result of that ministry, they were involved in years ago at that school under that other guy's leadership. And my friend told me a few years later, he said, well, that showed me how much I knew about God's will. God often chooses the most unlikely person in the most unlikely place uh, to do things that are very extraordinary. And there's no greater example than the, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. And so let's look for just a few minutes today at how that came about and how, as Paul looked back, uh, how he described what had happened in his life. He begins just with words of thanksgiving. I'll just briefly note that he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. He, he, he thanked Christ Jesus who had strengthened him, who, in other words, who had enabled him for appointing me 
Paul knew that he had been chosen of God. He knew what Jesus had said in John 15, it is not you who have chosen me, but I have chosen you. And, and so he, he's saying this choice rested totally with God and that he had been thankful that he had been appointed to service. Uh, to service. He doesn't say I was thankful he appointed me to leadership or to receive honor or to be served by others. To, there, there was honor in what Paul did, but it was to service. And when you serve Christ, if you're a servant of Christ today, if you trust in him, then ultimately you are a servant not only of Christ, but you're also a servant of the gospel. And you're a servant also of his church. Well, what had Paul been? He begins to focus now on his past because what was the basis of his appointment? Why had God appointed him to his service, for which he's thankful that God did? I don't know about you, but every once in a while I, when I'm reading the newspaper and I see the page in the business section and it will have pictures of people. Sometimes I've met them. Sometimes it's one of you. And it will say so-and-so has been promoted or a brand new appointment. And she or he attended this school and graduated with these honors and then served in this financial office up in Atlanta for so long and now they've come here and they're taking this position. And I like to look over those. Sometimes the qualifications, you can read those and say, oh yeah, I could see that person's totally qualified. Other times you read it and say, what does that past have to do with this present position? Well, that's what Paul was talking about himself because if there was ever a mismatch, what would appear for qualifications for an appointment, it was him. Now, here he tells that he had been primarily three things. He said, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, and I was a violent man. Now, I've been here long enough through the years to be part of several search committees for staff. And some of you have served on those. And we were looking for staff for the church or any other kind of search committee. And they're pretty predictable questions. You'll ask someone, well, tell us, tell us where you see that you're gifted. Where are you strong? Where are you weak? Tell us, tell us the three strengths you bring to ministry. Well, here's the... Here's, Apostle Paul being interviewed, you know, for one of our positions. Well, I was a blasphemer, and I was a persecutor, and I was a violent man. And, <laughs> Bill, you got any questions? You know, you're kind of spreading papers around. Well, that, that's helpful. Tell us, uh, anybody else want to ask anything here with our candidate, Paul, before we move on? I looked at these rather closely. We, we first meet Paul, who was named Saul, in Acts chapter 7, verse, verse 54. And he's there at the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr for the Christian faith. And let me just read this to you. This is where we, where we meet him. And uh, it, it says, when they heard this, this was the, the Sanhedrin, the court, when they heard Stephen's testimony, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, I see the heaven open and the Son of God standing at the right hand of God. And they rushed at him. They covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Here's now Saul. Here's where he's mentioned. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Bingo, there's the first mention of Saul that we have in the New Testament. So he'd been a, bla a blasphemer. His blasphemy was that he spoke evil of Jesus Christ. 
To blaspheme means to speak evil of Jesus Christ. When Jesus told some of the religious leaders they had blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, what happened in the words leading up to that is they had said to him, you cast out demons by the prince of demons. To blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is to attribute to Satan the works of God. He didn't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. He just induced him. He spoke evil of Christ. And so he said, I was a man who was blasphemous. But then he says he was a persecutor. A persecutor. It tells us in the verses that follow that where he's introduced in Acts chapter 8. Saul was there giving approval to his death. That's the death of Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And his persecution was intense. He was focused on it. He threw them into prison. If you've not read the book, Son of Hamas, you ought to. I read it back earlier in the summer. It's been out for a few years. It's a story of a uh, now a man, but as a boy growing up in, in uh, the, the West Bank and lived in the, he's a Palestinian boy from a Muslim home, but lived with the conflict with the Israelis and the Palestinians. Played a part in that, went to prison several times, and the descriptions of the Israeli prisons were made. Uh, it's one of those things you begin to read it and you think, Lord, I thank you that I'm anywhere but there, if even half of what this fellow is saying was correct. Uh, he was converted. To his, his, I should back up. His father started Hamas, the somewhat political terrorist organization, though his father really was not a terrorist. He's still a part of that today, and this, this fellow was his son, and he's become a Christian. He lives here in the United States now. But a very interesting account. But reading that on the prisons, that's what Saul was doing. Men and women, gender made no difference. He was seeing that if you were a follower of the way, that is the way of Christ, you were thrown into prison. So he was a persecutor of the church. Third, he says he was a violent man. Now, I'm not really into word studies, but sometimes certain words in the I use study Bibles, and I use commentaries, and sometimes words stand out. And there are a few of those in this passage that really stand out, and they warrant attention. And one of those was this word violent. Sometimes it's translated insolent. We don't use that word much today. An insolent man. Basically, that means it's a mixture of arrogance and an attitude that finds satisfaction in insulting and humiliating other people. You find satisfaction by insulting and humiliating other people. And that's what Saul says he was. That's the way he was. So Paul states all this, and there's no indication he's proud of it. But he's saying there's no basis for the Lord having appointed me as a servant. There's no basis because I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Now, you can imagine back to the search committee. They all look, well, no other questions. Uh, we'll get back to you. We'll get back to you. Thanks for coming in today. We'll, we'll catch you sometime in the future. But Paul says in verse 13, even though, even though all those things, even I was once a blasphemer, all those things were true, I was shown mercy. Humanly speaking, there was no hope for someone like him. 
Humanly speaking, he was aggressive and malicious, but he was not beyond the mercy of God. So twice he says, what happened was I was shown mercy. And then a couple of verses later he says, I was shown mercy. Why did God show him mercy? Well, the only possible reason why he shows Saul mercy, why he shows us mercy, mercy is because he is a merciful God. And he chooses to show mercy. Because there's nothing, there's nothing in our lives or Saul's life at that time that, that God would have looked at and said, oh, he deserves the mercy then. I see what's going on with him. I think I'll have more favor on him for that reason. He does kind of speculate, though, why God showed mercy. And so he says first was because of his ignorance and unbelief. But now he says, I was ignorant of what I was doing. You could say, oh, oh, the old, well, I really didn't know what the law was. You know, I really didn't know I was doing wrong. No, he's not trying to weasel out of it. He's not saying that his ignorance made God obligated to be merciful to him. But he's stating that his opposition, his aggressiveness against the followers of God through Jesus was not wide-eyed. It was not knowledgeable of all that was involved. And so he's saying that he was sincere. He did think those people were heretics. He did think they were blaspheming. He did not think Jesus was the Messiah. And even in the Old Testament, there is a distinction between unintentional and defiant disobedience. That's why the priest, even as the priest would make offerings, one of the offerings that said to cover sins committed in ignorance of the people. Sins no less, but, but not with the same edge as others. I had a friend years ago in seminary, and he and his wife had traveled down. He was going to preach at some small town. He was driving in Mississippi. He was driving back at night, going through an intersection in a small town he'd never been through. Someone had removed the stop sign. He goes through this intersection, and they're broadsided, destroyed his car. It surprised me when he said he was ticketed for running a you know, stop sign, even though the sign wasn't there. Well, we can perhaps see that and say, ah, you shouldn't have run it. Somebody could have gotten hurt, but we understand. I mean, there was no sign there. You were ignorant that, that was, you were not supposed to stop. Now, we might view that differently as opposed to if we lived in that town and the sign was there, and every day the same guy just drives right through the stop sign. Just, you know, defiant of the law. What Paul was saying is he was acting in ignorance and unbelief. So he's still culpable. He's still guilty. It still warrant, warrants uh, punishment. But there was ignorance involved. We think of the prayer of Christ on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Even Jesus acknowledged right then that the terrible sin they were committing by murdering God's son, he's saying they don't, they don't understand. They don't know what they are doing. Jesus told his disciples that people like Saul would come along. In John 16, he said, All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they are offering a service to God. That was Saul. He thought, I am offering service to God by dragging these men and women off to prison and by giving hearty endorsement to their execution. You remember what happened at his conversion? Because of time, I'm going to paraphrase it for you. 
In those verses that follow there in Acts chapter 8 that I read to you a moment ago, after he's there where they bring the cloaks of the witnesses of Stephen's death, and he gets these official papers and he's going out to persecute. He's got his papers now. He's got what he needed, the, the legitimate reason to throw these Christians into prison. He's, on the, he's traveling on the road to Damascus. This man who is motivated, he is violent, he is intense, he is brilliant. The best education of his day. And he's doing this, and this light, he's struck blind. Now just think about it for a moment. Sometimes kids play a little game. Imagine, you know, you close your eyes. All right, just imagine. And the, good, the way you can play that game is you know you can open them at any time. But if you just suddenly lost your sight, and this man who was on a mission in moments later is face down in the dust, and he is helpless. He can't see anything. Samuel, are you there? Mark? He doesn't even know if anybody's around him. And then this voice speaks to him. And he says, who are you? He still doesn't know. He's ignorant. God goes to a man named Ananias and says about Saul, he's my chosen vessel. That's the word. He's my chosen vessel. Now, Ananias, you're to go to this place, and I want you to talk to him. Well, Ananias knew all about him. He knew this was this guy. <laughs> him? I can only imagine how Ananias, a, 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 a ch chosen vessel? Him? And Ananias goes and talks to him. And as Alistair Begg says, he says, Saul, I'm, I'm as freaked out as you are. That's a loose translation of what's there in Acts, I think. I don't understand this. I don't understand this. And he's converted. And he stays right there. And literally within hours, he begins to preach the gospel. Now, then God takes him away for a period of years for his own training. But immediately he begins to preach. So he's converted. Many people say the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle next to the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus is the greatest event, most pivotal event in the history of Christianity. I wouldn't dispute that for a moment. So he's changed. He's appointed to this service. Look at verse 15, if you will. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Apparently there was basic theology, even in Paul's day, that had been put into small creeds. Creeds that they were beginning to be said throughout the church. And he's going to give several of those in 1 Timothy, and this is the first one. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he tacks on of whom I am the worst. Look at the content of this. The gospel is true and trustworthy, the good news of Christ. Second, the gospel is universal. It's to be offered full acceptance. That just not only means in its, in its quality, but full acceptance by everyone. This is for everyone, not just for, for a few people, not just for certain races, not just in certain places. This is for everyone. And third, the heart of the gospel is that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Amazing. Amazing. What had Paul been before? A Pharisee. A Pharisee of the Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, educated by Gamaliel, as far as he said, is the law blameless, faultless, as far as external obedience. What did they hate about Jesus? 
Because what was abhorrent to a Pharisee was to spend time with sinners. You did not eat with sinners. You did not walk and travel with sinners. You just didn't do it. And how did they want to insult Jesus? In insulting him, what was one of the things that they said? Oh yeah, he's the friend of, speak to me, sinners. And they didn't mean that as a compliment. They meant that as an insult. And now here, this Pharisee who had breathed pharisaical air all of his life, now he comes and he says, here's the essence, Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Oh, and it's not just those I mentioned back earlier in the chapter, if you were here last week, you know, in verses 9 through 11 where he talks about the law and so forth. He's saying, I'm the worst. I am the worst. Now, what does he mean by is, is he really serious? Is this literal? I mean, when he says, I am the worst, I am the worst of sinners, not I was the worst of sinners. Is this not maybe a little self-degradation we could overlook? I think he was serious. And I think he says he, he, he is because we all still live with sin. I think it's showing us a couple of things. One is how serious the sin of unbelief is. See, we, like they in those days, we think of outward sin, and here's this person living an outwardly rebellious, lawless life in every respect, very public, they have no shame, they don't care, and we think, oh boy, now that's a sinful life. And you look over here, and here's maybe somebody at First Presbyterian Church. And outwardly, they're like... Nobody can accuse, nobody would want to accuse them. They may have a high upstanding reputation and maybe they deserve it. But inside there's a hardness to the things of God and a refusal to believe in God's grace and to understand and trust in Christ and they depend on their own good works. We probably quickly would say, oh, well, that's the worst sinner over there, the, the hell raiser. Not the religious person. What was Saul? He was the religious person. And I think this shows us that not only that he sees it, that God sees it, unbelief, chosen unbelief is a serious sin. Could this be talking about any of you, any of us? That you know the essence of the gospel, you know the facts, you don't dispute it, you don't argue about it, you just don't put it into practice, you don't believe it. Could that be true of someone here? It was true of Saul, and he said, I am the worst of sinners. And he puts it in the present tense, not, not so much for the past. Some people say, well, that's all got to be the past. You know, I'm out of time. I don't know, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to land this plane in the next 30 seconds. I won't land it by telling you what I was getting ready to tell you, because I'll take too long. I'm going to uh, close with this. Because... What we find happens here with Paul at the end of this passage is he breaks forth in praise to God. He says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That, that's almost like a separate paragraph. He's talking about his past, he's, he's, and then he breaks into what some speculate. He may have even sung this. He's so overcome as he thinks about what God had done in his life that he breaks forth in worship. He breaks forth in worship. You know the story of John Newton. You know that he was a slave trader and that he wrote Amazing Grace. I read this paraphrase of his life last night, written from his perspective, uh, supposedly. 
Here's what he said. I was born in 1725. The only godly influence in my life as far back as I can remember was my mother, whom I had whom I had for only seven years. When she left my life through death, I was virtually an orphan. My father remarried and sent me to a strict military school where the severity of discipline almost broke my back. I could stand it no longer, and I left in rebellion at the age of ten. One year later, deciding I would never enter formal education again, I became a seaman's apprentice, hoping somehow to step into my father's trade and learn at least the ability to skillfully navigate a ship. By and by, through a process of time, I slowly gave myself over to the devil, and I determined that I would sin to my full without restraint, now that the righteous lamp of my life had gone out. I did that until my days in the military service, where again discipline worked hard against me, but I further rebelled. My spirit would not break, and I became increasingly more and more a rebel. Because of the number of things that I disagreed with in the military, I finally deserted, only to be captured like a common criminal and beaten publicly several times. After enduring the punishment, I again fled. I entertained thoughts of suicide on my way to Africa, deciding that would be a place I could get furthest from anyone who knew me, and I made a pact with the devil to live for him. Somehow, through a process of events, I got in touch with a Portuguese slave trader, and I lived in his home. His wife, who was brimming with hostility, took a lot of it out on me. She beat me and made me eat like a dog on the floor of the house. If I refused to eat there, she would whip me with a whip. I fled penniless, owning only the clothes on my back to the shoreline of Africa, where I built a fire, hoping to attract a ship that was passing by. The skipper thought that I had gold or slaves or ivory to sell and was surprised to find I was a skilled navigator. And it was there that I lived for a long period of time. It was a slave ship. It was not uncommon for as many as 600 blacks from Africa to be in the hold of the ship, down below being taken to America. I went through all sorts of escapes, narrow escapes with death only a hairbreadth away. One time I opened some crates of rum and everybody on the crew drunk. The skipper, incensed with my actions, beat me, threw me down below, and I lived on stale bread and sour vegetables for an unendurable amount of time. He beat me again and I fell overboard. Listen to this. I read this elsewhere too. Because I couldn't swim, he harpooned me to get me back on the ship. I lived with a scar in my side big enough to put a fist in until the day of my death. He talks about a storm breaking out, him crying out to God, and he said, God heard me. Thirty-one years passed. I married my childhood sweetheart. I entered the ministry. He became a pastor in the south of England. In every place that I served, rooms had to be added to the building to handle the crowds that came to hear the gospel. He wrote his own epitaph, and I'll close with this. Here's what he wrote that is on his tombstone. I saw a picture of it last night. Born 1725, died 1807, but here's what he wrote about himself. John Newton, a clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he once long labored to destroy. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. And there are those of us seated.